A little flexibility can go a long way. By refinancing your newer used auto loan with PenFed, you can lower your monthly payments for more flexibility in your budget. You can even schedule your first payment for up to 60 days from the date of your refinance. Calculate how much you can save at penfed.org slash autorefi or call 1-800-247-5626 to apply. Membership is open to everyone. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. The available AKG 36-speaker sound system in the Cadillac Escalade provides 360-degree sound, not just here or here, but everywhere. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade never stop arriving. Thanks for listening to Uncle Sam's Soccer Podcast, keeping you up to date with the latest in American soccer. And don't forget to subscribe. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of Uncle Sam's Soccer Podcast. Indeed, it is another special Kind of going along with the theme, the holiday theme, Armand. How's it going? Steven Jodder in here. Enjoying your holiday break? Yeah, you could you could say that. I'm here recording with you, so <laughs> uh, I could be doing better things, but you know, I'm here. You could. What? Uh, this is like the best time of the day. I know when you and I are on Skype talking about soccer, it it warms <laughs> my heart. No, it. Uh, it, the coffee war was my heart, but not 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 our conversation. Not our conversation. Well, today we got a very special conversation. We got Eric Stover, the COO of the New York Cosmos, 2010 Executive of the Year. And this man, this this interview we had, I thought was one of the more interesting interviews because you get that lower league perspective that we don't see represented in the media quite often. No, and, and he provides some insight into the dilemma that U.S. soccer has with lower division. And it's something you and I have actually just discussed. Think about it on our Christmas wish list. We talked about how the lower league and my soccer network wouldn't work out according to you. But I think I think people would get it. I think people would enjoy it because what does how often do we see lower division soccer? What is How often is it out there? The problem is how it's it's not out there in the in the, me, in the media at all. I mean, what ten years? What maybe not even ten years ago? Seven, eight years ago, you could barely catch it on TV. Now you can catch some of the games on YouTube or whatnot. But the question is, are we getting? Is it getting portrayed out to the bigger media outlets? And the answer is obviously no. Yeah, I mean, ESPN, ESPN FC with their show. I don't think they've ever in my little time actually watching that show because I don't think it's the best soccer show. They don't talk about it, but if you go to Sky Sports or BBC, they're talking about the championship. There are networks talking about League One. There, there is, You have the opportunity to do so. I think, um, I don't know, it's just my opinion here that, you know, I don't know for a fact, but you definitely feel like the lower divisions get, you know, kind of... Um, screwed in the sense that there is nobody wants to pay attention to it and it and it feels like there's 
Uh, Stover actually mentions this at some point during the interview, this connection between MLS and U.S. soccer. And he mentioned how the lower divisions are kind of, um, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, blindsided by the fact that they don't get anything. It, it's kind of like they're off to the side. Unimportant. Like, like, like I said in our little Christmas wish list, no casual fan will ever care about a second division soccer until there is some sort of promotion relegation put in. I'm not advocating for promotion relegation. I'm not saying it should be implemented right now. I'm saying st- straight up, the casual fan will not care about lower league soccer until some system like that is implemented. If it involves MLS, it does. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And we actually talked to Eric about uh, potentially adding promotion relegation, but not with MLS. I mean, it was it was a very interesting interview, and I'm excited to I mean, share it, with you guys. He, yeah, we talk about the New York Todd Cosmos. We talk about the differences between MLS and NASL. We talk about the career paths of youth development. We, we really mention and talk about almost everything U.S. presidency. So, uh, yeah, let's get to it. Show's really special guest. He's the COO of the New York Cosmos and the 2010 MLS Executive of the Year, Eric Stover. Eric, how you doing today? Very good. How you guys doing? We're doing, doing well. We're, we're doing great. Yeah, just rela- relaxing, having this great discussion on this Thursday. I wanted to talk to you about wh- why did you want uh, to take this Cosmos position? Because you did accomplish a lot in at the Red Bulls. You've essentially helped build the foundation of uh, what they are today reg- with the stadium and with uh, bringing honoree on- to the Red Bulls. So what made you want to take on um, a position like the Cosmos in the quote-unquote lower leagues of uh, U.S. soccer? That's a, a great question, and I, I don't know that anyone's ever asked me that before. Um, <laughs> you know, the, I, I thought the the idea that Seamus O'Brien had with the Cosmos, um, what his vision was short-term and long-term was, was really compelling. Um, and I, I don't think he gets a, enough credit with how ambitious he was basically wanting to return the Cosmos to greatness. Um, you know, to be fair, I think in the late seventies, the Cosmos were arguably the biggest club in the world. The first truly global club, um, at that time, global football, you didn't really have stars, certainly not a team of stars from around the world, maybe one or two. Um, and so it, it was it was such a big story and such a global story that he had the vision of, of trying to bring the cosmos back to that greatness. But at the same time, developing a league that um, was on more of a, a, a global philosophy, um, you know, building the NESL into something that was relevant internationally, um, that had more of a club first focus, less about the league and more about the clubs. Uh, so I thought that was a very interesting approach and in, in something that U.S. soccer needs. Um, and then, of course, we had 
a television network we were starting and a, a bid to build a state-of-the-art, not only stadium, but mixed-use development. Uh, so it was a lot of things really ambitious. And in hindsight, I think it turned out that we were, we bit off more than we can chew um, in such a short amount of time. But um, I think now that a lot of what's being debated and discussed, uh, that vision is even more relevant today than it was five years ago. You obviously mentioned how historic the Cosmos are. And I, I get in some sense, in some circles, people know the name New York Cosmos more so than, say, Real Salt Lake. You know more about the history with the Cosmos. And do you think that is – how important do you think the Cosmos name, the brand, is to U.S. soccer? I think it's essential. And it, if you're going to be honest and give credit where credit is due, much of the infrastructure on a grassroots level – got its start around the the growth of the Cosmos and the NASL in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were youth soccer organizations in New York. There were a lot of amateur leagues um, and a lot of ethnic support for the game, but it was in pockets and in neighborhoods and really tribal, and the Cosmos and the NASL uh, brought it on a national level. And I think that, you know, that bolt of lightning was critical for growing the game across the United States. Um, so I think the history of the team in the, in the league is, is so important with where the, the sport is now. And I, I do think it's a bit unfair. A lot of um, the, at the start of MLS and the justification for single entity was around uh, well, you know, we, we have to have single entity and salary caps because we can't have what happened with the NASL and the Cosmos mm. destroying mm. the league. Uh, there's truth in some of that, but the Cosmos didn't destroy the NASL. They were a big factor in building the NASL. There were other business mistakes like overexpansion and expansion to bad markets or markets that didn't have the the revenue needed and other business mistakes. But the the Cosmos really put the sport on the map in the United States. And um, so I think some of that revisionist history has been unfair. And and I, and I have to agree with you, Eric. Uh, as Stephen knows, I've been doing a deep dive into the so- uh, U.S. soccer history. I even purchased a Dallas Tornado jersey that, that, that I found. So, I mean, I, I, I've, I've gone too deep. Yeah. But, um, just, I mean, when I was looking back on the history, I mean, it's true. The Cosmos played an important role. You can find the first game that uh, Pelé played in uh, for the Cosmos actually on YouTube. I think it was against the Tornadoes. Um, and it, it, you see 25,000 packing the stands and you're like, and you're like, wow, this was, this was soccer in, in, in the uh, early, early 70s. If you even look even further, you see the Minnesota kicks um, had averaged around 23, 24,000 in the late 60s, early 70s, something that, you know, around that time, it wasn't, it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty big deal. It'd be a pretty big deal right now if they did it as well. They're such a big part of the U.S. soccer history, but yet it seems that almost year, almost yearly, we have this discussion about the future of the Cosmos and the NASL. What do what do you what do you think of that? When it just it just seems like I feel like we we hear it almost again yearly that 
some the cosmos might uh, or the nasl might uh end up shutting down yeah it's certainly not um it's not pleasant to work in that kind of environment right you're sort of on thin ice and afraid that it's going to crack beneath you at any moment and it's been like that for two or three years now and it's difficult for our players our, our staff um our fans of course um they they just want to support their team and not have to deal with courtrooms and whether um we're ever going to go on sale with season tickets because we don't know if we're going to have a season um so none of that is good none of it's good for the development of the sport it's not good for a good young american player like eric calvillo 19 years old that is building Mm -hmm. a career and could at some point be on the national team. Um, having that level of uncertainty is not good. And I can't really get into the specifics of what our issues are because it is a pending court case, but right. our league feels that there have been a lot of unfair business practices used against the NASL. Um, and it, getting to the point where we can't function uh, without addressing these issues any longer. And so it, it is in court, and it's not what I want. It's not what our fans want. But, um, you know, it, it does feel like it's been a death by a thousand cuts. And what we really would hope is that U.S. soccer would say to us, what can we do to help? Um, and from my point of view, that's never happened in the five years I've been associated with this club and this league. You, I, I want to get to your comment right there, but before that, I want to shift back to just a quick question. You work both at MLS and now NASL, so the lower division. What is the big difference as far as, I don't know, structure, vision, and just the ideals behind the clubs? Um, well, <laughs> how, how much time do we have? Well, we, we could be here a long time. Yeah. <laughs> we got all we got all the time you need. We got all the time. You need. <laughs> all right. Um, well, I. So I was at. Uh, well, first of all, I was at Giant Stadium in um, the early 2000s. So I, I was managing the stadium when the Metro Stars were playing there. I, I saw really as the Metro Stars started to de- to decline. So the first couple years. Uh, 96, 97, they had pretty good attendance. By the time I was managing the stadium, it was 2000. Um, and the attendance was starting to decline. The interest was declining. There was a lot of criticism on quality of play and you know, ultimately the future of the league. Um, so I saw it firsthand from that point of view and having worked with the Metro Stars executives for five seasons. Um, I started with Red Bull in 2008, um, and I think some of what we face now, I dealt with at what we face now in the NASL. I dealt with at Red Bull. Um, 2008, we the the Red Bulls played in um, MLS Cup Championship. We had four players start that game: uh, Luke Sassano, Danley Borman. Uh, Danny Sapero and one other player, maybe it was Sinisha Ubi-Parapovic, I'm, I'm not sure. But the four guys started that game, and their salary was $17,500. Um, and we had a league board meeting that weekend, and I had argued to the Board of Governors, and 
you know, it was an awkward situation for me to be in because I'm not a billionaire. I don't own the team, but I was the league, uh, the club representative with all the other owners. And I, you know, had to delicately say, I, I don't think it's good for our league that four players are starting in the 2008 championship game, making a collective of $70,000 or whatever it was. Um, and I do think the league heard that message and it has grown quite a bit from that point. I think the league minimum in MLS now is somewhere over $40,000. And I think Mm -hmm. that stuff is good. Um, certainly second division soccer when I was at Red Bull was nothing. Most fans, uh, most people in MLS knew nothing of what was going on in lower divisions. Um, you know, there was no coverage of the matches. Games weren't streamed or on television. Um, nobody was aware of any of the players. You certainly wouldn't have had players like Joe Cole or Raul or Marco Senna or Juan Arango, uh, Giorgio Samaras playing in second division in, in 2008, 2009 uh, in the United States. Um, so it's come a long, long way, but we don't have a pyramid. We don't have a structure. We don't have promotion or relegation. So a lot of the growth and potential that we see gets undercut by the instability of not having um, what we would argue is a federation that is representing all levels of the sport um, and a pyramid that provides stability and structure for investors. Me and Steven actually had a little discussion about lower lower league soccer a couple like I want to say a week ago when we talked about Steven wants to start like a it was a little little wish list and we talked we ended up talking about the lower league coverage and I ended up kind of telling him basically that essentially the casual fan will not care about the lower league until there is some sort of promotional relegation within. Do you, do you do you agree with that uh, kind of mindset that I have? That I mean, I just I just don't I just don't see why a a casual person would be interested in the uh, lower leagues if you know there's a better or quote unquote better product available. I I think you you do touch on something that's that's important and relevant, and I do agree that if we had promotion or relegation, people would care more, and it would be more tribal. Um, we play in Brooklyn. People in Brooklyn would probably identify with us in our fight to be promoted more than they do now. Uh, I do think that you can build a market in minor league sports in this country. Um, you know, certainly there's minor league baseball teams that don't have any media coverage whatsoever. They're not on television, but they sell out every game. Right. And the owners of those teams are making money. So there is that potential there. But um, I, I, the fact of not having promotion or relegation does hurt a lot of other things that are part of the business in this sport, globally in particular. And one of those things is youth development and developing players. All professional teams should be striving to play American players that are young, developing those players and that and there should be training compensation solidarity payments a transfer market where those owners could not only benefit in those revenues 
but help develop players that move up through a pyramid that makes the overall sporting culture in this country better. I think there are major breaks throughout um, that process. And I tweeted something the other day about meeting with, um, over the last five, ten years, with a lot of clubs from big leagues around the world. And they, they all say that the American athlete is good enough to have a world-class national team, but that we don't do well from ages 15, 16, up through early 20s. That it, at that critical point where it, really the rubber meets the road, where Christian Pulisic goes from a good player to a world-class mm. player, we're not good enough at developing uh, players at that very critical age. And I do think not having a system where a player comes through an academy, becomes professional, move from, moves from a third-division team to a second-division team and from a second-division team to a first-division team to the MLS and then possibly to Europe, to, to have breaks in that process is is a big reason why, one, uh, lower division owners can't make money, and two, our national team isn't as good as it could be. There's no Jamie Vardy stories in right. the United States. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, now, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I mean, it's a, fan, it's, it's a point that... Steven I, always brings up that point. No, I do, because I think it's... Jamie, does, yep. Jamie Vardy, I mean, started at the, what, the 8th division in England, and, and here in America, it's... Now, but do you feel like U.S. soccer is just about MLS and the USL and a NASL could kind of, well, lack of a better term, just go screw off? Um, in some ways, yes. I, I think that U.S. soccer could and should be doing more. I think there's been a laissez-faire approach hmm. to the economics of the sport at a minimum. At a minimum, it's been laissez-faire. And I think throughout global history, when you're talking about economics, laissez-faire approaches lead to monopolies. And I, I think there is evidence that points to that. Um, and, you know, we <laughs> none of us want to be talking about economics and uh, trickle-down economies when we should be talking about hey, we're going to the World Cup and we have a real shot at winning it. Not that we qualified out of CONCACAF, but yeah. that we have a real chance to win the World Cup. After 20-plus years of MLS, we should be there, and we're not. And I think whoever is the next president of U.S. soccer, that has to be a priority. And to be honest, I'm not seeing enough of the what I think is important being discussed by those candidates. Um, so, so Eric, you did talk about how U.S. soccer does have that kind of just uh, it's not that much, um, I guess, intervention when it comes to the uh, leagues, uh, the lower leagues in soccer. What do you think U.S. soccer could do that could uh, help out the NASL and lower uh, lower division soccer today? Well, I think the most important thing is eliminating the conflict of interest. The, having U.S. soccer's rights for men's and women's, um, you know, the national team games, 
bundled with the TV rights of MLS is a clear conflict of interest. And I understand why it started, but it's a, a critical problem now. And it's leading to uh, major lawsuits and major complaints from all sides of the sport in the United States. The women are complaining about unfair treatment, about wage disparity, about how their revenue that they're generating through sold-out stadiums and marketing deals is dispersed unfairly back to MLS. We have our complaints. Um, you can't on one hand say, yeah, sure, NASL, you're independent, um, good luck. Market forces will will determine if you're going to be successful. But then at the same time have a business relationship with uh, Major League Soccer, which has money flowing back and forth between the two entities. It's inherently unfair, and uh, federation should be governing the sport, not in business partnership with members of who they're governing. Well, let's, let's unpack this the U.S. presidency because you're hitting on some of it. What, what do you make of the candidates, and have they addressed the issues well enough or even you think – they have the appetite to take on this challenge because I was talking to an individual and he was mentioning that a lot of these guys are coming from the media. A couple of them are from the media. Then you have one from some and some business background and with the others, one's a lawyer. What do you make of this, this field? Well, I think first of all, it's encouraging because we're having debate for the first time. Um, no one ever ran against Sunil because people in the know uh, would know that they had no chance of winning the way the the votes are structured and how um, voting is processed um, you just Sunil had it all locked up and you had no chance of winning so why would you spend money on something you know you can't win for a job that doesn't pay um, but now we have these eight candidates and there's a lot of debate um, and so I think that's very good. I think um, there's sort of a spectrum of candidates where, based on what I've seen and heard, I'd say Winalda's in on one side of the spectrum where there, a lot of change is needed, and uh, everybody else sort of falls in that spectrum. And then on the far other side is, is Kathy Carter. Uh, she may be talking about some changes that need to be made, but my my estimation is that she would be a, a status quo candidate. Um, but at the very least, we're having debate and we're talking about things, and some things will change, whoever gets in, in the position. And I hope for the women that they get treated better and more fairly. Um, I hope for youth soccer that there's um, a discussion and movement towards um, – Fixing pay-to-play, and we probably should talk about that a little bit because my opinion might be a little different than most of your listeners. Um, and so many other things that, that need to be adjusted um, and, and addressed because it isn't good enough. We, the, the CONCACAF qualifying and the HEX is set up for U.S. and Mexico to get in easily. No one can, can effectively debate that or argue a, a different position. It is by far the easiest federation to qualify out of and for us not to, to qualify. It wasn't Clint Dempsey just hitting the post. It was a disastrous qualification process 
we should not be losing to Trinidad and Tobago under any circumstances uh, or anybody else really. We shouldn't be going to Mexico and being ecstatic that we drew. Um, we have the potential to be better than that. Um, and so there, there are a lot of things that have to be addressed. Uh, and I, I just hope that through the, these next two months and then whoever gets the job that we start fixing some of these things. So you mentioned it, Eric. Let's talk about it. What's your opinion on the pay-to-play issue? So I, I think there's a lot of criticism of youth clubs that have pay-to-play. And I, I think it's unfair in that these are private organizations. They're not getting funding from uh, from school districts or from counties or states. So it's not like in Germany, let's say, where you may have an independent club, but there's a structure around it where the federation and uh, municipal government is participating in uh, getting kids playing and active, whether it's for recreation or as a serious uh, career goal, um, there's support. And we have those same things in the United States for basketball and football and baseball. I played Little League, um, Little League baseball, starting when I was a little kid growing up in, in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, and it didn't really cost me much. Um, but for soccer, the, you, you don't have that infrastructure, you don't have that support, so it's a lot of these clubs are private. And when we don't have um, solidarity payments or training compensation or a transfer market, how are these private clubs supposed to make money and cover their costs? Some of them are, are huge juggernauts that are all about profits, and that I don't like. But a lot of them, most of them, are you know, scraping to get by and, and doing it for the, the love of the sport. So this idea that pay-to-play is evil, I think is a, it, it's missing the disease. It's just you know, identifying a symptom, but the disease is something else. The disease is that we don't have um, money that trickles down through the youth system that makes pay-to-play more affordable. And that's really what we have to get at. And I understand that there's labor laws in this country and I understand I worked in MLS and around MLS for many years. I get the desire to contain costs, but all of that points to the break in the system, the break in the process. And we can find examples of kids that have come through and have been successful professionals. So I, I don't mean to dismiss that, but we are not producing enough dozens or hundreds of 18, 19, 20-year-old players that are competing for those national team spots at a, at a rate that much smaller countries are, are doing. Germany has their second, third, fourth team is probably better than our first team. And until we can get to a point where we've got four world-class players at each position fighting, for that spot, we're always going to struggle with the best of the best. But do you think it's a, it's a, a coaching issue as well? Yeah, I think there, there's some of that. I, my daughter's five years old. She played soccer for the first time. I mean, it's not a fair comparison, but <laughs> um, there's a lot of rolling the ball out and just yeah. kicking it. Um, 
I, I do think the the move towards licensing is good, but it should be more open. It should be easier for people to get into these classes, and it shouldn't be restricted um, from who's applying. We should be doing more to get coaches educated. But there are a lot of very good coaches in this country. Um, but there's also a lot of conflicts of interest. Director of coaching at a big club can make $125,000, $150,000 on the youth level. That could be two or three times what a head coach or a technical director makes in second division soccer in this country. Wow. That's real numbers. It's not me exaggerating. I don't have an agenda. I'm not a coach. I don't, I don't get paid on that scale, but there are coaches in second division soccer making $60,000 a year. When you're, you're faced with the opportunity of being a DOC at a pay to play club where you can make two or even three times that those are real numbers. And that is upside down. Um, Mm -hmm. And we have to find, it's not only identifying that these things are wrong, but what are the solutions? How do we get revenue in? How do we change the revenue flow? So we start fixing some of these things. So we don't have breaks in the process. No. Yeah. Yeah. Eric, that's, that's a really valid point. I mean, even at the, uh, I want to say at the high school level, you see something like that. Uh, I don't know, Stephen, if you remember when we had our discussion with uh, Fred Kaiser. Yes. Uh, he he mentioned that an associate high school coach can make more than a Division two and Division three uh, 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 head coach at a uh, college. So I mean, I think it, it, it's across the board. Very uh, interesting how that shakes up. And it's also it's it's interesting to see uh, that that the coaching licenses it's for some people it's 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 really hard to get and also it's it, it takes a lot of a uh, compensation compared to what uh, you have to pay maybe uh, to get a license in a different federation over here it it's it's it seems very expensive and very ex- exclusive at times do you agree with that Eric Yeah no it's definitely the case. It shouldn't be as expensive as it is. There should be more access. Uh, maybe that's part of growing and mm. needing more instructors. I, I'm I'm not sure. Um, there are a lot of great people in the NSCAA that have dedicated their life to this sport. So I don't want to sound like I'm being critical to the coaches that coach our future coaches. Um, but you know we're trying to point out challenges in in I think in this presidential election there are a lot of things that have been ignored over the last 10 to 20 years that we've got to put in front of people and find solutions there is a big war chest 150 million dollars that US soccer's sitting on you can't eliminate pay to play eliminate pay to play with that money but you can start um, developing coaches better, making it easier, more affordable, more accessible. And you can help with with scholarships, and you can help encourage um, player compensation, training compensation, and solidarity payments. We've got to get towards that over time. You can't you can't suddenly become England and, and move players through a pyramid mm-hmm. overnight. 
Um, but pay-to-play is going to stay and stay in its dominant position until you can help offset some of the costs. It's very interesting, Eric. Now, I want to ask you something that's been on my mind for quite some time, something Amon and I have talked off off the uh, off the mic quite a bit, is with with the promotion and relegation system. And now you've tweeted about saying how we should get closer to that, maybe MLS developing a plan, I think you said five-year time, which I think is, is very smart and it, it just makes a lot of sense, even if you extend it maybe to 10 years. But just get the ball moving on and having discussion – seems like MLS is completely shut to it, but why is it, has there been any discussion between the NASL and the USL and maybe having some sort of promotion relegation within the bottom lower, you know, the, the bottom half of, of American soccer? Well, I know it's something that we at the Cosmos discussed, um, but, and this is where our system that we have is, is so dysfunctional. Um, it might make sense to test it in lower divisions. I, I get that line of reasoning, but the the business models between USL and NASL are, are so divergent. Um, and um, the USL has this strategic partnership with MLS that having a conversation about ProRel, um, you know, most people say to me, and I, I get the the instinct to say, all right, if you took the best, most professionally run USL teams and NASL teams and called them second division, and then everybody else was third and there there was a fourth and um, the economies of scale are, are easier to manage and you can do pro-rel within that system. Yeah, that, that sort of makes sense, but it, it also doesn't address the divergent business models the pre-existing relationships that people have, MLS and USL. So, uh, unfortunately, I think the court system, Miami and Kingston Stockade's um, complaint mm-hmm. to the Court of Arbitration, our antitrust case, are probably the most effective tools to open that discussion. I don't think there's um, a negotiated path forward. That may change. Um, who knows what happens in the next couple of weeks or the next couple of months. But I think the assumption that there have never been conversations about how do we work better together is, is completely false. I know there have been meetings. People have tried to uh, find common ground. It's just it, it's, not, it's not bared any fruit. Would the, would the NASL – I mean, I know you don't speak for the NASL, but in your opinion – would they entertain something along the lines of uh, maybe a partnership with what Peter Wilt is trying to uh, b- uh, build with uh, his, like, I think the NISA and, um, w- and maybe, and uh, like you said, start, start a lower, a lower division pyramid, maybe not including the USL because of their distinct uh, uh, mechanisms that they have and how, how different they are uh, business wise from you guys. Would you, would there be like some sort of interest of sorts, just starting that lower that lower league pyramid and having that, that compete against the MLS? Well, I, I'm not sure about NISA and and, and the NASL and any of the if there's any conversations. I I, I don't know, and but I do know that 
the, the focus for the Cosmos and in the NASL is on antitrust case at the moment. Mm-hmm. But as a soccer fan, so taking off my Cosmos hat for a second, <laughs> what I'd like to see is a third division that's regional, that you've got the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic and the Southeast and the Midwest and you know, sort of the way the PDL and the NPSL are broken down, but have that be a proper third division. The third division still has sanctioning requirements that I think stifle investment and growth. Um, so I was looking at when the whole all the news broke about Columbus, I was looking at a map, and there's so many cities within our two-hour driving distance where you could have a 12 to 16 team league in the third division that could have really compelling matches. Um, it, Cleveland, Columbus, Dayton, Cincinnati, uh, Detroit. There's so many cities, in, and I'm leaving off half of them, that are within driving distance of each other, and you could have a really compelling third division, sort of like college sports where you've got conferences that have history and rivalry, and there's a tribal um, uh, derby associated with cities, sort of like Portland and um, in Seattle. You could do that on a on a smaller scale all over the country, and have it be part of a proper pyramid. Where then you move up to a second division that's on more of a uh, national scale. It's so our lawyers have gotten a lot of public stick from people talking about time zones. And what I think people misunderstand is that that's kind of a tool, a barrier to entry. It, it you know, when you're paying players ten, fifteen thousand dollars a month with which a lot of lower division teams are paying, but it costs you twenty five thousand dollars to play a road game that that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make it's mm-hmm. taking money out of players' pockets. It's it's wasting resources. It's not focusing on the competition. So we should be eliminating these barriers to entry and finding a way to work together and have more compelling competitions that promote growth in the sport. Right now, it's putting so many teams in a situation where they they have to make tough decisions. Rochester just, they won the USL mm-hmm. what was it, three years ago. Now they're not playing anymore. Um, and part of that is it costs them a lot of money to play second division soccer. So, you know, we should be thinking about these sanctioning, these, these parameters and, and why they're there um, and what defines, what truly defines second division. I don't think it's, three time zones. I think it's the budget you have that you invest in players. Well, it's one of, because you basically what I, it sounds like you're kind of developing what I would equate to England is as the conference. And then you would, I guess, be able with this regional, be able to move up through the pyramid. Is that, is that one of my understandings correct? So you could, yeah, potentially... you know, I, I, I think there's a lot to discuss there. It's not easy to take getting sure. a bunch of people in a room and, and figuring it out. But that's what they have in Italy too. Yeah, and I, I feel uh, like so, so I don't want to interrupt, but I feel like no, with, go ahead. With that, you develop more of the culture, and from my point of view, as a first-generation American, that's the biggest missing link. Yeah, development, but it's the cultural aspect. I I live up here in Madison, 
And let me tell you, there's there's nothing here close to soccer, but I see more soccer jerseys than any other outside of the state jerseys possible. I mean, you see all the, especially during the Champions League and all that, but when it comes to any MLS-related stuff, I've seen one jersey. But soccer among the young kids or my age, you know, Armand and I's age, it's there. Definitely. Uh, so we played a friendly game against Valencia in Regina, Saskatchewan. They built a, it was this summer, June or July, I forget when it was. But they built a beautiful new state-of-the-art stadium for their Canadian football team. We went up and played a friendly game there. There were 15,000, 18,000 people there. I walked the building. Everybody had a soccer jersey on. Mm. Everybody. There were very few Cosmos and very few Valencia jerseys, but there was the German national team. There was uh, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Manchester United. Everybody had a jersey on. Very few were Canadian and American teams. Um, and so the market is strong, even in places like you said, Madison is at Wisconsin. Yes, sir. Yeah. Madison, Wisconsin, great potential market. How many people go to Wisconsin football games no, on a Saturday? 80. I mean, the stadium right. is packed 80,000 plus, you know? Right. So if you had a, a professional soccer club, let's say it was third division in a 5,000 seat stadium with, that was really tribal, hometown, Madison in its core, it would be supported. Same thing in Boise, Idaho, same thing in Regina, Saskatchewan. But right now, we don't have a culture that encourages that. Mm. We have a culture that encourages markets like Nashville to start something out of scratch, to have a major league team, because it's it's a feather in the cap for the city of Nashville. Um, and so I, while fans love the idea of the sport and love the sport, they're supporting it internationally, not domestically. And I don't think there's enough attention to how we fix that. And I agree, Eric. I also, I know, I mean, I know you, you don't, you don't take an issue to this cause you have referred to the league as minor league, but do you think if the NASL and the USL were more and the other leagues weren't, necessarily called minor leagues and were just called second division do you think that would maybe change the perception among the uh casual fan um about like maybe generating more interest within those lower leagues yeah i think it's a good point i think that term minor leagues been used as a weapon against us and, and, you know, I st- we started this conversation. I was talking about Seamus O'Brien's ambition and where he wanted to see it go. And, you know, we were we were um, obstinate not to be referred to as minor league. Um, and I, I do think there's validity in what you say. I, I don't think it, it helps. It, it would be in everybody's best interest that we talked about divisions and growth and opportunity and not marginalize leagues and teams and clubs. Yeah. And I think, um, I, I, I just, I, it, it's just so hard to imagine because although I am right now studying at, uh, Madison, 
uh, Armand and I originally come from Dallas, and obviously you had spent time with MLS. But I mean, Dallas is a huge market. I mean, the youth there is is incredible coming out of. I mean, you got players at Schalke, uh, one at Benfica, Kellen Acosta at FC Dallas. You have this youth, but when it comes to culture in the club's direction. It's lackluster, and it, and it, it's just it makes you scratch your head, and it kind of makes you angry sometimes. And it's like we should be able to sell out a twenty thousand seat stadium easily. Do you feel that soccer in America is is still growing? Because I've heard people, radio personalities, say soccer has kind of come back down with the failure with the national team. Um, that's a really good question, and I. I I think it's it's a little bit of both. Um, I think it is growing in interest and popularity. I, I again, I have young kids. I drop them off at school. Mm-hmm. I see a lot more soccer jerseys than I do uh, football jerseys, and that's in you know North Jersey where you've got two NFL teams. Um, and so I do think the growth is is there. I do think the gross domestic product of soccer in this country is big, uh, but I do think most of the money is being spent on European clubs mm. um, or Mexican clubs, whether it's eyeballs on television or jerseys or track jackets or whatever. Um, but the potential is here. You know, People do want to support their, their local team. It is very hard for Dallas and Red Bull being part of the original clubs to reinvent themselves with now 20 years of, of lackluster history compared to starting from scratch like Atlanta um, and sort of catching lightning in a bottle in the market. That, that team has done much better than I anticipated. There was an NASL team in Atlanta sure. and it, it got no support. Um, and I, I thought that Atlanta playing in an NFL stadium, that it was it was not going to be successful. Now we'll see where it is in five years, but it does illustrate when you get to start from scratch with where the sport has gone in the last twenty years, how how much better of an opportunity you have. And I think you'll see the same thing in LA next year. Um, so there are a lot of signs of of growth, but I, I don't think we're we're getting enough growth where we need it. Sure. And that's on the youth level and and lower division level. And uh, absolutely, Eric. And um, actually, uh, the former head coach of the Cosmos, Gio Saravese, actually just left for Portland. And after his success at the Cosmos, I mean, he won three titles with you guys. Um, what what are your thoughts on uh, Gio being able to uh, prove himself on the uh, in the MLS? Well, I think there's. So much that Gio doesn't get credit for. Um, everybody talks about what a, a great guy he is, what a great coach he is, and how much the, the players love him. Um, that's all true, and you know we've developed a, a really good friendship, and I'm so happy for him. Um, and I think he's going to a place where the fans are absolutely going to love him. Mm. Um, I expect him to be very successful for some reasons. Uh, yeah, for some reasons that people don't discuss. So we, we've always been successful with recruiting players at the Cosmos, and a lot of it was on the strength of Gio's personality. He conv- convinced people to play 
for less money in the second division um, just to be part of what our culture was. Uh, we get a lot of criticism from fans. A lot of people don't really understand us in the NASL, and we're, we're polarizing. Um, but if you talk to players, they they know how we've run our organization. It's been very professional. We treat everybody as if they're part of the family. Um, that's been core to our identity when we started this five years ago, and Gio's a big part of that. And he'll bring that same thing to Portland. And I think that's a community where that will resonate. He'll bring players in that maybe um, they couldn't fit under the salary cap before, but maybe they can now because the people will want to play with him and they'll want to play his style of soccer. And I think the fans are absolutely going to love him. He speaks five languages. Oh, wow. Um, and <laughs> yeah, it's one of my the highlights of my career, like three years ago, standing outside the locker room with him when we were talking about stuff. It was a training day. And an Italian player came out, Nocelli, and he started talking to Nocelli in Italian. And then Reversio, a Brazilian player, came out. Um, <laughs> and speaking Portuguese to him. We're speaking English. Yeah. And then Marco Senna came out of the locker room and he speaks Spanish to him. Um, and I've seen it. I've seen it go really bad in locker rooms where the Spanish-speaking guys and the English-speaking guys get divided and yeah. it's not a unified team. And he will not let that happen. Um, and, you know, he is so good at man management and um, communicating with people. So I think Portland got a, a great guy. I think they're going to love him, and I'm very confident that they're going to be successful. Well, we're really excited to see him in in Portland. I think it's I guess it's a good sign that you know I guess MLS clubs are starting to look at the lower divisions. I think there needs to be more of a connection as far as just even even if you don't have promotion relegation, but being able to bring up players so you can get the youth. Be like even if you start you know at a Division three or Division two club, you still have the opportunity to move up and play top level soccer in America and compete you know, hopefully for the, for the national team colors, regardless of where you're from. But what's the direction? I know you guys, there's a pending lawsuit, but what's what are you hoping to come out of this lawsuit or what's the direction for the Cosmo and the league? Well, for, for the lawsuit, we have to get this preliminary injunction. Without it, I, I don't know how this league continues. Um, there's a lot of interest with expansion markets, and we've had a lot of interest over the years um, there are, are a lot of investors that like our business model better than the franchise model of the USL but we've struggled with the instability of the league with teams being poached out of our our league and until we can get the stability to have you know two or three years where the federation is going to help us and not either stay at arm's length or participate in, in, in teams being poached from us, um, it's going to be hard to, to keep growing. Um, so this preliminary injunction would allow the league to continue without it. Uh, I don't know where it's going to go. That's not my decision. I, mm. I'm an employee. I don't mm. own a team. I'm not the commissioner. Mm. Um, but it is a very critical time for us and, uh, like everybody, I'm anxiously awaiting an answer. Finish things off. 
I know you don't really have a, uh, a, a necessarily a, a specific say in the U.S. Uh, presidential race, but um, out of what you've seen so far, who's a, who's a, who's a candidate that I don't want you to throw support at anybody, but who's a candidate that you've liked their message so far? Um, well, I haven't heard anything from Carlos Cordero. Um, he seems to be working behind the scenes. Um, so I'm not really sure what his platform is. Um, I'm concerned about, you know, Carlos voted against our sanctioning, so I'm concerned about him. I'm concerned about, as I said, the relationship between some MLS and U.S. soccer and how I think that needs to to be, there needs to be a divorce there. There needs to be independence. There needs to be fewer conflicts of interest. So I don't, I'm concerned about those two candidates. I think uh, Kyle Martino and Eric Winalda bring the understanding of the sport uh, from a player's point of view. Um, I think they've said good things about the challenges on the women's side. Um, so I, I like both of the, their, those candidates. I'm not sure. There's a lot of, um, I think, indecisiveness on pro-rel out of everybody. Winalda's probably more supportive of it. Uh, so at the moment, I, I think I like what I hear out of those guys more. Um, I'm probably leaning more towards the change that Winalda would like to bring. Um, I don't really know much about Gans or, or Winograd. I do hope that I think there's too many candidates I think they need to mm-hmm. um, start debating these issues. They need to meet with each other um, to see if there's a uniform platform that could carry the day and um, win the youth vote and the adult amateur and the athlete council and all those different voting contingencies. I think there's it's going to be a, a hectic two months, um, but. You know, I think there's there's just so much that needs to be fixed that hasn't been addressed, and we're you know we're paying for it now. Well, Eric, we want to thank you so much. And here on the show, we call it the shameless plug. I know we can follow you on Twitter at Eric Stower NYC. Um, but is there any other places you wanted to plug? Maybe you know the Cosmos or anywhere else. Yeah, well, you know, obviously, uh, hopefully the Cosmos are playing next year, so we're at nycosmos.com. And as you mentioned, uh, I'm on Twitter at Eric, E-R-I-K, Stover, NYC. Um, so you can follow me there. I try to be open and transparent, answer questions, uh, particularly the nice questions. <laughs> um, and if you're a Cosmos fan, I, I try to... You know, if you get a cold hot dog at a game or a warm beer, I try to fix those problems, too, so you can find me there. Perfect. Well, we appreciate it, and you definitely uh, have uh, opened our eyes to the lower division as as we continue to do our research and to find out more about the, the, the U.S. structure of soccer. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. It was a good time. Awesome. Thanks, Eric. Thank you, Eric. Metro and the best deal in wireless, you can rule your day. 
Get two lines with 5G access included for just $35 a month per line, period, with taxes and regulatory fees included every month, all on America's largest 5G network at no extra charge. Metro by T-Mobile, empowering you to rule your day. Requires auto pay. First month is $40 per line for two lines. 5G access requires capable device. Coverage not available in some areas. See Metro by T-Mobile.com or store for details. The N-OLED display in the Cadillac Escalade has 38 total diagonal inches of color display. So why do we give it a curve too? I guess you could say we like to bend the rules. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade never stop arriving.